This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Mateus, Surfshark VPN is a brilliant product and it's one that I personally use. Yeah, me too, man. So you know that we're having Peter Stormare join us in a few episodes time. Well, I was watching his show, Secrets of the Viking Runestone. Oh, yeah. Well, you f- did you actually manage to finish it? That's the thing. For some reason in the UK, we can only access the first six episodes, even though there's 12 available everywhere else. Oh, that's weird. So, so what did you do? Mate, honestly, it was such an easy fix. I popped open the Surfshark VPN app, changed my geolocation to Denver, Colorado, obviously, so I could be a little bit closer to you as well. <laughs> Open back up Amazon Prime. There they were, all 12 episodes. It was literally that easy. That's awesome. <laughs> and don't forget that whilst you're using Surfshark VPN, your personal data is safe and secure, especially on public Wi-Fi. Yeah, so head over to surfshark.deals forward slash NMP to get 83% off and three months free. That's surfshark.deals slash NMP to get a massive 83% off and three free months. So get yourself covered uh, for just a few bucks a month by visiting surfshark.deals forward slash NMP to get 83% off and three free months. But please make sure that you, you, you visit that link so they know that we sent you. Yes. Let's get into the show, man. Welcome to the Naughty Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Hornsburden, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvik. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. This time, we are joined by Simon Nico, who I uh, like to describe as my evil twin. Um, <laughs> a, uh, Simon is a, an assistant professor at the University of Aarhus, uh, Aarhus University, which is my alma mater. I've had the pleasure of studying with Simon. Um, and uh, he's a specialist in pre-Christian Scandinavian or Nordic religions and is working or has been working on especially rituals and ritual performance in um, pre-Christian religion in, in the setting of the hall where we know that the cloaked Odin will show up and, and join us. Um, <laughs> and aside from that... Um, uh, Simon is also uh, one of the front people behind uh, the eminent black metal band Wolfas. So welcome to the show, Simon. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you very much, Matthias and Dan. Thanks for having me. You're, you're welcome. Uh, feel like we already know each other, seen as we uh, <laughs> <laughs> speak for the past twenty minutes. Um, but I'm sure. It, I mean, to be honest, if that if that's anything, by the way, the episode is going to go. It's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Because I'm already super interested, um, but yeah, I think, like I said, I think we should start with what rituals are, maybe in a in a pre-Christian sense. Because, um, like, like, yeah, I, I don't really know. Well, um, so kind of uh, keeping it fairly empirical uh, is, is first of all a hard thing because we don't have many ritual descriptions from the Viking Age. Uh, kind of symptomatic of the issue is the fact that the best, most full ritual description we have from kind of from contemporary time, from from from, uh, from the Viking Age, 
It's written by an Arabic uh, trader about people living in what's now Russia. This is, of course, the famous uh, description by Ibn Fadlan uh, of, of, a, of a Rus funeral, a Rus chieftain's funeral. Um, so, uh, and, and many of the other descriptions that we have are late, like many of our sources, and then uh, influenced, of course, by Christianity. Uh, and that, that presents a problem uh, of varying degrees to different scholars. Um, I, of course, as an historian of religion, would be out of a job if, if I thought that we couldn't use the, use the sources for anything. Um, so, so what we have described there uh, in the medieval sources, various rituals, both what we call public and private rituals, and rituals that are performed in a public space, uh, or a semi-public semi space like the hall, and, and rituals that are performed in the house. Famously, uh, the, the uh, passing around of an embalmed horse penis in northern Norway, reciting poetry to the horse penis, which is called Bölsi. Uh, that sounds like my kind of ritual. Yeah, it's that it is. Well, you're a man, so so you you, you shouldn't. You should. Uh, that's at least how I read you. Uh, you, 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 are, you are correct. You don't need to worry. Good. Uh, and in, in this this particular ritual is is uh, pretty much female driven. At least they are more positive towards worshiping in various ways. The horse penis. Um, so that that's one 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 kind of uh, side of it, and then we have big, uh, bloody rituals, uh, horse offerings, um, offerings of, of various livestock, and communal meals, uh, which are also a form of ritual. Mm -hmm. um, and and we also have divination rituals, casting lots, and stuff like that. Uh, so we have a lot of different types of rituals in in the Viking Age. Before uh, we move on to those, I want to know more about the horse penis ritual. Uh, I don't know what that says about me. Of course. You do. I don't know what that says about me, but that just seems like a fascinating ritual. It seems... It, definitely. It, and and what, 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 what can, if, we, if, we, if we kind of condense it, uh, the, the lady of the house in uh, a pagan family in northern Norway is visited by a cloaked man who calls himself uh, masked. And he has two guys with him who are also called masked and 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 they are uh, the, the the king of norway uh, king olaf olaf the holy who, who christianized uh, potentially possibly christianized uh, uh, norway and became saints um and he he he's come to 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 convert these horrible pagans and um the lady of this household keeps a horse penis locked in a shrine and uh, this horse penis has been uh, strengthened with uh, with uh, fabric uh, special special type linen i think it is linen and uh, onions or spring no not spring onions what are they called paul matthias um, um leeks 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 those are the ones yes. yeah linen okay. and leek they even alliterates in, in english as well which yeah. is uh, linen like uh, yep. is, is the is 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 the old Norse. So she's involved involved this horse penis, uh, and and then during uh, during the, the during the winter she takes this horse penis out every day after they've had dinner. Um, and, <laughs> after and dinner as well. After dinner, yeah, the after dinner <laughs> ritual. You don't get an after eight in 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 uh, Christian northern Norway. A, you get 
get a horse <laughs> Yes, exactly. And 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 um, they then take turns reciting a a poem to Bolsi. Uh, and it, it goes something like, uh, accept this offering, uh, Mernia, which is a weird name and the crux of the whole interpretation of this, uh, this myth or what we call it, this ritual is, is what the hell that means, what that refers to, um, accept this offering, Mernia, um, and, and then, uh, the females, uh, present more or less overtly sexual, uh, um, poems and the males present uh, poems that uh, kind of give the picture that they would really rather be you know out some doing some, somewhere else, else. <laughs> yes, <Okay>. anywhere <laughs> anywhere, but anywhere but near the penis <laughs> yes and 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 uh, of course there is uh, there is uh, the exception the in in it's this is a story called the Thauter, which is kind of an Icelandic short story, and and it's a it's a uh, it's called the conversion Thauter, which comes with with its uh, own kind of tropes. And one of the tropes is that that we often have this proto-Christian pagan person, and this is uh, this is uh, the the daughter of the household, and uh, she is kind of hesitant as well to play her part. And and the whole thing ends with King Olaver. Uh, getting uh, the, the horse penis as the last person presented to him, and he then throws it to the dog. Um, and and then, <laughs> then, the, then the thing kind of abruptly ends because Volsi is eaten by the family. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, 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 and I, uh, you know, we, we talk at length about who or what Mernier is or are, uh, but but that would take us in in a very different direction. Mm-hmm. You can read a, a, a good article by by Kostainsland uh, and Kari Fucht from eighty one. If you read Norwegian, this. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, do we know the purpose of the ritual? I'm guessing it must be fertility, or do we not know? Yeah, some so the the, the standard kind of interpretation is that we're dealing with some form of fertility ritual, either. Aimed at the Vanir, um, uh, Freyr having kind of uh, one of it, his attributes, at least according to Adam Bremen, is a large uh, penis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and or, one of the things that that Adam Adam uh, uh, refuses to mention are the, uh, the or the songs, yeah, the songs that they, they he does he doesn't want to repeat them. <laughs> Because they're they're oh, apparently shy? a little too woo. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's part of the theory, right? That 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 yes, that could be that could be some of the songs that they they were singing in Uppsala. Mm-hmm. The other possibility uh, is uh, giant women, Yunda, uh, mm-hmm. and and both would have to do with some form of of fertility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, personally, I, personally, I think the whole Yatna thing is is overrated in terms of like, um, you know, these like, these like very set ideas of like good and negative uh, forces and all that stuff. I think it's a little more mixed than that. So yeah, I think I think that's a that's a possibility that it's something that it could be a ritual. Dedicated to something that you know, a guy like Snutter Sturluson, for instance, would quali- uh, classify as Yehnar, right? But might might have been something else to those people if if it ever took place. 
there's yeah, also yeah. that possibility that this is just something that uh, that describe of Olaf's saga just came up with, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then we you had so you had the uh, Rasmussen uh, on the show uh, a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of episodes ago, I think. I don't know, sometime, mm-hmm. not too long ago. And and he told me last time we saw each other uh, about a uh, ritual in Brazil, a candle ritual, which he described as a weird bastard between Volsatauta and and uh, and a, a parade, uh, basically. Yeah, um, we, we've had that conversation too, me and Ruth. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, you know... Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, no, an I, interesting, I think, I, it's an interesting I, description, nonetheless. I think you know, you know, this actually. I use this story in my my Vikings class as as like one of those situations where I make my students think critically about the source material that they're working with. You know, to the Viking Age because it's it's such a it's such a good on the fence kind of story. You can find so many historical examples that are very similar to this. Like, just consider all the you know Romans parading penises around everywhere. Yeah. Um, pretty common as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and all on the same, place. all over the place. And the same uh, in the same vein, you can also criticize the story for being heavily Christianized and even like there to ridicule pre-christian religion to some extent that's definitely how i believe the christian authors of the tale uh saw the whole thing right so it's like two two different directions depending on your inclination here <laughs> yes yeah it's, it's like you say it's an interesting story and i can't believe we've got to 101 episodes before i've heard of the Horse penis ritual. I'm a little bit disappointed <laughs> by you, Matthias, for not letting me know that one a little sooner. I'm sorry. I'll I'll try to do better. <laughs> okay, now, now we know. Now I'm satisfied with the horse penis. We can move on to uh, <laughs> we can carry on with, I guess, what a, a, a typical ritual would be, or, or what we may kind of can assume it would be. I guess. Yeah. So 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 the rituals that I've worked with. Um, are rituals that that presumably took place in in the ruler's hall, so the king's hall or the chieftain's hall, um, a place where um, where people uh, who we could classify as belonging to the elite would, would gather and and do whatever, well, basically everything. Uh, that's how it how it was in in the Viking Age halls. It's basically one room for everything. More or less, um, and and what also that's what I've, I've argued that is that 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 um, the performances of poetry that uh, we have descriptions of uh, in the Old Norse sources, um, some of those performances of poetry had a ritual layer, mm-hmm. and and some didn't, which is also it's equally important to say. Uh, what I did for my 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 PhD dissertation was look at a selection of five poems that my co-supervisor Terry hadn't worked with yet, um, or hadn't worked very much with yet. So there was stuff left to be said about them. <laughs> um, nice uh, to look, leave you something. <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, scraps from from the, the British table, the table of the rich. I only that's not a saying in a, in, in English. That sounded weird. 
But uh, I, I I know the ones you the one you mean. Yes, it, it's yes. Do with Good. rats and uh, the table scraps. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I could have made it up. Don't listen to when I say it. <laughs> Nah, no. no, 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 no. I, I've heard it too. I uh, can't yes. really reproduce it, but I've heard it. <laughs> so. Well, moving on then. Um, so so uh, the poems I look at, looked at, uh, I've looked at um, are in a specific meter called Yoldahauter, which is one of the main meters that Eddie poetry is, is, is written in. Um, and and the, the, the Yoldahauter meter means song meter or incantation meter. And it's it's special in the sense that uh, performances in this uh, meter almost exclusively take the form of dialogue or monologue in the first person. So Forni uh, like or old story meter, which is the other main meter, uh, keeps almost exclusively to third person narration. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also, I, makes... I, I wanted to, to ask you, uh, isn't it also typically Odin who does the Yoda Houter? Like Odin dispensing a bunch of wisdom. It, it, it's, it is often linked to, to Odin, yeah. Uh, yeah. Highly. Uh, um, so so what, what happens when, when this is performed, if we, if we, if we take these poems and, and look at them as... as um, oral-derived poems, this poem that stem from an oral tradition in some form, not necessarily word for word, but the gist of them. Um, uh, if, we, if we see the poems as having been performed by actual humans in the Viking Age, that performance would uh, have, as my argument, been uh, a ritual. And the way I look at it is that use modern ritual theory, uh, which um, defines ritual very broadly, uh, which also, of course, encompasses and encompasses uh, non-religious rituals. But uh, religious rituals are rituals, ritual actions, ritual acts that stem from a group's tradition, and that people ha- have it made up entirely, um, and that that direct themselves towards gods or the other world in 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 some sense. Um, and, and my argument is, is then that, that uh, this modern ritual theory, I use the ritual theory of, of American anthropologist uh, Roy Rappaport, um, and he argues that, that rituals um, have consequences for people and, and that the performance, what, what is performed, uh, has the potential to change statuses and circumstances and surroundings. And, and working with that, I argue that the performers of almost poetry, or at least of these older the poems that I've worked with, um, just Grimnis Maul and Havamal from the, from the part of Havamal from, from the Poetic Edda, and three weird skeldic poems called Raft Maul and Eirik Maul and Haukuna uh, Maul, which are uh, composed to uh, Viking Age Norwegian kings, father and two of his sons. And these poems, the performers who the, the performers who performed these poems would have been affected by that which was being performed. Grendus Maul is, is a fantastic example of Odin coming into the hall disguised. He calls himself uh, Grimnir, which means the masked one. 
and he's tortured immediately by the host, set between numerous fires for for, uh, for eight does. days. <laughs> as one does. That's not a nice way um, to treat him. I mean, he could have yeah. been carrying could have been carrying a horse cock if he was the master. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the that's the trope, of course, that that the Velsatauta uses for mm-hmm. for uh, for King uh, for King Olaf. Um, and 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 what then happens is that that's the king's son, the prince. He comes and gives Odin something to drink when he sat there for eight nights. I see that as this happening on the ninth night and as some of you may know the number nine the ninth night in in old norse mythology is special that's where things get cooking that's the liminal number basically and means that 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 these transformations can now take place because everything is the structure is disintegrated it's in form a state of anti-structure um, it's also he gives him mead, right? Like it's he gives he gives him a he, he gives him a, a, a horn of mead to drink. Yeah. Uh, we could call that a libation ritual, mm-hmm. and this libation then unlocks uh, this numinous knowledge, this secret uh, Odinic mythological knowledge that most of the poem then com- uh, com- comprises of. Um, so 40, 40 stanzas straight of uh, where the gods live and how the earth was created and how Yggdrasil, uh, the world tree, is faring worse and worse because, because Ragnarok basically is approaching. Um, and then there's, uh, there's a change in, in content in the poem where Odin then starts to recite, or well, Grimnir, we don't know that he's Odin yet, people. He starts recite the performer starts reciting Odinic names. Um, these lists of, of names for Odin and the whole thing, uh, the climax comes when he reveals his identity, he says that that I I was I was called this and that in the past, but now I'm called Odin. Uh, come near if you if you dare. He says that to the king who's been torturing him. And who's formerly... he also... So doesn't he also say that he's drunk? Doesn't he say, oh, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're drunk? Yeah, you, 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 <laughs> and, and all the gods think you're a dumbass. <laughs> you, you, you drank too much, and when you do that, you lose my, uh, you lose my support and that of my Einherr or that of the Einherr. Yeah? Uh, and and I see my friend's sword lying bloody before, uh, kind of an ominous, ominous sign. Mm-hmm. And Gerrother then dies. Basically, I feel like that would make the perfect. And at this moment, he knew he fucked up mean when, <laughs> well, he, yes. when he reveals his odin he was just kind of like oh shit yes. well there's, there's some good illustrations of of, of uh, Gero, the, the king just stumbling from his throne dropping his having dropped his sword and then it just hits him in the in in the gut just, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i think um, i think an important component to this is also that i mean uh, Gero the violates uh, a, a very important ethos here. You have to treat yeah, yeah. your your guests well, right? The first yeah, thing he does is to chain Odin up and then you know put him between fires, and you know that's not a nice way to treat your guests. That's no way to treat your guests. Um, but but that that's to me that that also signals that this is this is a liminal situation, right? Because because one of the the, the 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 most important social codes of hospitality and the sanctity of the hall is violated by. Ruler himself, right, mm-hmm. um, and and that 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 kind of sets up the whole the whole thing uh, quite nicely. So, 
this uh, this is this is the narrative as we have it in in the poem, uh, and and seeing that as kind of a representation of ritual activity is what I then you know uh, argue for that the performer um, whoever that was performed the role of Odin and and reveals his identity gradually basically he drops hints every every now and then to his identity by mentioning not his name but Hugin and Moonin, for instance, and that his son is Thor and stuff like that. And um, uh, this would also, I argue, have ritually transformed the performer gradually. And the, the climax of the transformation is then when Odin's identity is revealed and the performer reveals himself as also being Odin in that moment. Um, and what if also I remember is, correctly, Simon, have you looked into the language that is used? Because if I remember correctly, the word that he uses um, when he reveals himself is is a word that uh, essentially means swi switch or change or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, so, Upa um, Yeah, which yeah. which has also even I could have guessed that one. Yeah, exactly. All right. <laughs> uh, so so it can mean anything from. Uh, visions having fleeted before his eyes to him, him uh, lifting his face, which is my kind of my favorite, mm -hmm. uh, in line with with again Terry Gunnell's reading of of part of this poem, that that uh, that Odin between the fires, the first thing he says is that uh, these fires are pretty hot. Fire, get away! My my cloak, the 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 the, the edge of my cloak is burning, um, and then he stands up spreading uh, and i spread it out before me he says uh, so we have this image of a of of a, of a person with a burning cloak standing with this cloak singeing at the edges uh, mm -hmm. having lifted it up uh and and the argument is that for him to say that now I'm, i lift my face 45 stances later must mean that he's been looking down all this time and he reveals his face at this point and then we have the the, the 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 very interesting name that gives themselves the mask one. Um, if we take that as kind of a describing name, we could argue that that he was I saw someone mention a mask in the chat, and that's that's very right. That that that's this potential use of a ritual mask in 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 this um, in this poem and and. The, the the obvious link that's been made by by among other uh, Paul Mortimer and Neil Price um, is to the Sutton Who helmet, mm -hmm. um, which is constructed in a way so the garnets that are set above as the eyebrow of the Sutton Who uh, helmet, one side is set on gold foil, very thin gold material, and and the other isn't deliberately by the, the the smith who made the help meaning that when you enter a hall and this has been done uh reconstructions have been made and and this has been done experimentally uh by by the living history group called wolf us um and when you when you enter a hall it's only lit by fire gold foil catches the light from the fire lighting up one eye and the other eye remains dark Mm -hmm. giving this, again, connect, connection to Odin, basically. Um, not saying, of course, that that's, 
the sudden who helmet was used to perform Grimness Maul, that would be preposterous. But the motif, what, what's what's going on there, could could be be similar at least. And and it's not only the sudden who helmet that has this distinct feature; it's just the one that has it uh, to 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 the highest degree. Could could the masks have any link to um, kind of the artworks we see in the the masks we see in artwork? Obviously, we had Luciano on last episode, and we spent a bit of time looking at the Kevin casket with the, the God masks kind of on there. And he was talking about the, the, how, how they've been placed there with, with great care um, and symbolism, I guess. And they did not really understanding why these masks appear. Mm. And I, yeah, I just wonder whether the, there could be any link with those and these kind of ritual. Yeah. Yeah. They, they could, they could. Uh, <clears throat> and, and they, of course, we, we have to be careful with, with, with the generalizations we make because there, there's a system, yes, system of pre-Christian culture in the north, but 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 a mask doesn't necessarily mean Odin. And a well, mask... see, this, is, this is what uh, what Luciano was pointing out is uh, quite interesting. We start seeing masks a lot in the very late pagan period, the early Christian period, mm-hmm. um, which you know is, is interesting in and of itself. Are we dealing with a syncretic situation? Are we dealing with uh, or maybe you know an attempt to like uh, signify you know pagan relations more than non-pagan and and he was also telling us how um, Christianity has a uh, strained relationship to the idea of masks like they 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 don't like them when you wear them <laughs> but but if you put a mask on something it's like oh, okay whatever so, mm-hmm. so there's like a uh, there's something going on there. I've, I've never personally looked into like you know medieval Christian attitudes to masks, so I, I find it incredibly uh, fascinating that that it comes such a thing in Scandinavia and why and how and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah. uh, you were saying about the the Bamber casket, how it had the the one big mask on the on the lid, and it how that must have had some significance, and it did seem to be kind of pointing a different way to to all the other ones. Yeah, it just got me thinking whether there could be any significance to to these rituals and obviously that mm-hmm. kind of mask idea. And, and the the only uh, uh, scholar who, I can't remember his name, who has who is like researched the, the, the mythological imagery on the Bamberg uh, cask has suggested that it's an angel, um, which... Uh, Lucianos was like, ah, that sounds like a stretch. And I, I kind of, <laughs> I, I agree with him on that one. But it's just interesting to consider that, you know, those who have actually looked into it are like, well, this is some kind of supernatural figure, right? So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, so, um, so the performer turning into Odin, of course, has consequences for himself, that they, it gives him religious authority. It, uh, it, it elevates his position and, and establishes him as someone who is in connection with the gods, a ritual specialist, um, so to speak. But it also potentially has consequences for those who attend uh, the ritual, who, who are in the audience of the performance. Um, and again, looking at the potential context of the, the elite hall in the Viking Age, some of the persons or some of the people that we, we, we assume were present at these, and we are told in, in the in the sources that we have about it, uh, the, the 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 warriors, uh, the elite warriors, the the the, the bodyguard of the, of the group, basically. Yeah. So so these warriors, uh, 
one of the underpinnings of why they do what they do is an ideology based on going to Valhut to Valhalla when they die. And uh, I kind of I, I see Valhut as a idealized social image of of the hall, basically. So we have Odin as the ruler, we have the Einherjer as as the fighting uh, the, the, the the elite warriors, the the war, war band. Um, we have uh, Valkyrie or the Valkyries as representatives of, of the females who were no doubt also present in the Viking Age halls. Um, and, and kind of working with this ideology, projecting it from the sources back into Viking Age reality, as it were, um, I looked at, at the content of the poem and, and noticed that uh, some of the stanzas explicitly, of course, mention Einherja, but also mention activities that are relatable to people in, in this environment. So uh, eating and drinking, of course, uh, fighting, which are basically the three things that, the, that happen in, in Malhut. Um, and it also mentions, uh, so it mentions the Einherja, but it also mentions, Grindis Mal, for instance, mentions names for the Valkyria. And all these names uh, etymologically are linked with active battle, most of them, or battle magic. Uh, we have descriptions of the Valkyria uh, from, from uh, for instance, Daradalyov, uh, the, the poem of, of Doru, the, uh, an Irish, uh, Irish king of a battle, describing a battle Battle of Clontarf, I think, maybe. Yeah, Correct me if I'm wrong, someone. I can't remember which one. Yeah. One of them. Um, but, but basically, it describes the Valkyrie as protecting, being present actively on the battlefield and protecting the king. Um, and, and these Valkyrie, uh, other than having active, kind of having links with active battle, they also, of course, have links with serving drink. Uh, and, and, and then we can build on the, 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 the old argument, well, yeah, it's old now, I think we could say mid-90s is old, uh, from <laughs> Michael Enright, uh, wrote the book uh, Lady with the Meatcock, basically argued that these high-ranking females presenting uh, drink in a ritualized fashion to warbands was this, this was a role that was there in, in not only the uh, the, 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 the Viking Age North and the Germanic area, but also the Celtic area. Um, so kind of seeing these presumed, again, groups of people in the presumed audience as, as ritual, uh, ritual participants, they had the potential to look for things to identify with. And those things would then, if we look at them as ritual utterances, had the potential to transform them into the mythological uh, collectives in the ritual. And at the very least, give them an idea of what was going to happen in their afterlife, right? One, one question about the, the, the Valkyrie, and specifically mm. Valkyries uh, presenting drinks. Isn't that a snurry thing? Isn't that particularly snurry? Do we have... Grimnus um, we, well, presents this as well. Does... does that's the thing. He doesn't mention Valkyries. He doesn't mention the, 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 the word Valkyries. What he does is he lists names that are other places used for Valkyries. For instance, in, in Eriksmon Haakonomal, 
Right. Well, no, well I, the the idea of a a female figure bringing uh, drinks to 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 the warriors, I think, is very legitimate. This is more like a nerd question about like, is it exactly Valkyries or is it something else? If um, if, we, if we trust uh, if we trust the names and the coinc, well, if we don't think it's coincidental that the Valkyries performing what Valkyries do in uh, Hakuna and Aedix Mal. Oh, no, in Hakuna No names are mentioned in Aedix Mal, but in Hakuna as well. And then the names in the list in Gerimnis Mal. If we, if we think there's a connection between those three things, then I think it's pretty safe to say that Valkyries had the potential to, uh, uh, to bear drink. Also, now I think about it, uh, Aedix Mal does say that Val Valkyries uh, they, 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 so that the Ain Hadia have to clean up the place because the king is coming, and the Valkyries have to bear wine. Vien bear, that's Valkyria right. That's, right. that's 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 the they have yes. to they have to, to to carry wine to to King Eddie. So yes, yeah, we we have that whole like yeah, yeah, clean up clean up this mess and make it nice for the king and all that stuff. That sounds very Disney. It is very Disney. Like, all like the it. all the animals from the forest come in and help out as well. Yeah, I, I I like to envision a scene because it it it, start, it starts with Odin saying, um, "What is this dream that I dreamt, where I made I I, I told the Einherjer to wake up, to rinse drinking cups, and the Valkyria to bear wine because the prince is coming to the hall tonight." That's basically that's what that's the first uh, stanza of this poem, and I I like to envision this grumpy Odin kicking uh, Einherdi over the shins to wake up and, you know, <laughs> clean up the house. Because... And do the dishes. <laughs> do the dishes. <laughs> and I think that also kind of, that, that, the, 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 so, so I think that not disintegrates, but kind of loosens the boundaries that older scholarship saw between the female domestic sphere in Valhut, and that's where the Valkyrie basically belong because they are glorified barmaids. And the warrior men who fought, and drank, and you know, fucked, and 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 did it did all the again. Dishes apparently also, <laughs> but they also did the dishes, right? They also yeah. did the dishes. And, I just wanted, and and again, the Valkyrie also potentially fought. Yeah, I I just want to throw in uh, support for for what you're saying from Grim and Smile. Stanza thirty six does mention that they carry a beer for the area. So uh, yeah. It's not just Snorri who who uh, who comes up with that. He has it somewhere, yeah, from somewhere. Snorri definitely has it, uh, but it's a very consistent theme. It, it looks like, yeah, um, yeah. But they're not specifically mentioned as Valky Valkyries, but they the names are names of Valkyries that we know from other sources. So yeah, checks out. Checks out. Yeah. Yes. So so potentially. So now we we, we have uh, uh, the 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 performer transforming into Odin. We have uh, the participants transforming into mythological uh, collectives. And then the, the third thing, which before you, I, I had a nice kind of one, two, three uh, thing before we started recording, but there are three things. There always are three things. And there are three things, three transformations taking place. Uh, for you who are listening later, I, I'm holding three fingers up to the camera. <laughs> yeah. um, we've, we had, now I'm holding two of them. We had the two. And the third one is... Um, <laughs> The third By the one. way, you added the third finger, <laughs> finger there as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're doing our best. Uh, 
the third thing is is the the performance space. So um, there's been a lot of discussion about did the Vikings have temples or did they not? Famously, the grumpy. Well, I don't. I didn't know him, so I can't really say. But his his writing is is always strikes strikes me as some kind of some sort of, some some form of grumpiness. All of Olsen. Uh, the archaeologist from Aarhus. <laughs> yes. um, he was very I'm critical. pretty sure he was grumpy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's safe to say. So he famously wrote a book where he vehemently denied uh, that the Viking, the, the, the people in the Viking Age had ritual, had ritual buildings, basically. They only performed rituals out of doors. Didn't Elena uh, Lund also get on that wagon for a while and, and was he, very, he like, possibly he possibly uh, he possibly did that but mm -hmm. uh, and this all this all kind of hinges hinges on uh, the lack at the time of archaeological material because Olaf Olsen was uh, an archaeologist since then we and found... he was looking for stuff that 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 sort of like was more along the lines of what happens in Greece or Rome, you know. Like yes, like, yes. I, I, we, I can't find any pillars anywhere, so there's no... Where temple. are the marble pillars? For crying out loud. <laughs> um, so, but, but since then, places like uh, like Ubokra in, in Skåne in Sweden, uh, Tisø uh, in Sjælland, Denmark, uh, the newly uh, discovered temple where structure in Norway, um, I forget where, but but <laughs> the, the, there there are structural similarities, architectonic similarities uh, that, and of course deposits that that uh, pretty certainly tells us that, that these were used for ritual activity. And of course, um, Uppsala as well, right? Uppsala as well. We have uh, earlier now we we have uh, Fæstel in 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 southern Yulen uh, dating to the Iron Age, which also has weird deposits. Um, and so there, there are buildings that fulfill the, the, the role, basically, of ritual buildings. Uh, some of them are uh, set aside, but, but the hall still, uh, to, to my mind, at least has a potential as a ritual arena, um, not the form of ritual that, that we would readily identify as ritual, name, name, namely kind of killing animals and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, or making offerings to idols and stuff like that. But these forms of poetic performances taking place in the hall um, would would classify, I think, as rituals. Uh, that, that's, that's actually what I was going to ask, is that, that these, these performances of the poems seem quite obviously like theatre. And would they be would they be viewed as entertainment or would you also be hoping to kind of get something back? Which I guess is how I always think of a ritual is that you do an action in hoping to get something back from the gods I mean, is that kind of how the same thing with the with the performance from the poems or is it just a an entertainment for the, for the oh, you play right into my hand then because because i i, I take a strong issue with the, the the differentiating between entertainment and ritual that's very protestant of you uh, uh because <laughs> yes <laughs> and in because in protestant christianity which uh which um, many uh, at least in in the in the northern european uh, context, uh, that's their view of how religion is. It's fucking boring. Mm -hmm. Sorry to, for, for offending anyone, but I, you know, Protestant ritual is boring. Yeah. Um, and, and if you expect to find that 
then 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 you don't find bridge but but you in the viking age and in so many other cultures ritual is a spectacle the ritual is entertaining um and and there i i don't think that there necessarily has to be kind of watertight a watertight barrier between the two i i like to see it's sort of as a spectrum right we have very intense very clearly ritual um again i'm using my hand sorry for the podcast listeners uh, at the one end of the spectrum we have very very markedly ritual on the other end we have less markedly ritual but still retaining some ritual features um and and um i think in, in these performances would have had both uh both sides uh they would have had um they would have to some would have been more religiously loaded than to others and to the, the the people drunkenly fighting way down the table couldn't hear a thing you know they were there of course one of the one of the main points of ritual studies just to make an aside is basically that it doesn't matter if you believe or if you actively feel that you take part in a ritual if you're there you're part of the ritual and you don't have to understand anything i i i i said that a lot of times during my phd defense to my family it doesn't matter if you don't understand what i'm saying mom you know you're you're here for the spectacle and i and i appreciate that uh same goes for all you guys um um but but um taking part has degrees as well right not all would take part on equal terms or in equal or to equal degrees um but, but coming back to the space and in, in in performing something in a space that was used for everyday activities the performance i argue again uh transforms the place and it does so in 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 uh, a number of ways uh, it does so by conflating that which is being performed in poetry with this place that we are in now so performance uh, the poem the poems often use words like here or in to to denote that where the the poems that often take place in halls or around halls take place in this context that we are in now right uh and this place sometimes in in kremlin's mall is just whatever other worldly hall or whatever ruler's hall uh, that's then transformed by olden coming into the hall but in edix mall for instance in kremlin's mall and in hall mall it's it's olden's hall it's valhall so we we have this conflation of what i call the performance space the everyday hall and the performed space of the poems of the, the content of the poems and and conflating the two makes um is one way to uh, to um to virtually transform uh, the the hall space another way is building on and grimnis mal does this uh, brilliantly building on the mythological landscape as we know it so we know that around olden's hall there is a well and the world tree is there and we know that in in the mythological kind of in in the cosmology as we call it the, the way the world is is constructed we know that there is primeval fires um and we know admittedly only from snorri uh that the the sky is held up by four walls and this is then coming back to an argument of terrigonals in 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 that in 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 medieval icelandic manuals for, for, for building houses the the 
kind of the little wooden pieces that keep up the, 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 the roof of halls are called dvergar. They're called dwarfs. It's the, it's the same in Denmark and Norway. Yeah. They are, so, they are, they are still called dwarfs. Yeah. So, so that kind of all that's playing on that imagery, basically saying in, in, in Grimm's mouth that uh, on top of the, on top of the, of uh, the hall, which is here, which is also Valhut, which is uh, Odin's hall, there's a goat eating off of off the, the the world tree, um, and and uh, the fire that, that we have in the beginning and also uh, throughout uh, resembles uh, the fires of Muspak. Um, we have these elements uh, that then then would create a sort of microcosm in, in, the, uh, in the hall. So the high seat pillars could be argued to represent the tree, the kettle on the fireplace could be argued to uh, represent the, the body of water near Yggdrasil, um, and the, uh, the hall roof being held up by dwarves also has its own kind of connotations right so so building on this um uh in just in in the performance uh when these places and these elements are mentioned some of the bearers of pre-christian uh culture would have made the identification that's the argument basically and then the the space would have been transformed uh, into a ritual space uh, underpinned by this mythological reality that is fascinating um, so do you think, you said, I know you said it has effects on people, do you think they, they would have had like a direct effect in a sense of, um, like you said in the, in the first point that the, the, the leader of the hall was was killed because he disrespected Odin, could he go as far as that, do you think, in the ritual that, that somebody ends up dead? So my um, view on that, my view on that, uh, Dan, is that, that the poem is a representation of an inauguration ritual of, of of an initiation ritual in which that the, the king who dies is the old ruler who in the in in the ritual reality has been killed already or is dead already and and he's just there to be shipped off into the other place into the other world to be collected by Odin and the prince who pours the libation for Odin is the one who was initiated as the new king the ritual specialist acting as Odin is then the one who performs the ritual. I think we and, have okay. We have other uh, other sources that you know, can indicate uh, a, a like deliberate sacrifice of a king. Yes, um, that as well, yeah. 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 Inglinger saga or Inglinger Tal in, in Inglinger saga as an example. And we also have uh what is it that story from Saxo. There's a there's a Saxo story as well. There's always a Saxo yeah. story, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we we have we do have those those situations too, but um, but I I don't know if uh, if we could in any possible way link this poem up to that. Like, well, we we can do anything we want. The, the, the I guess so. is people will believe us, right? <laughs> That's um, true. Yes. <laughs> Good point. But, uh, yeah, no. So ruler, <laughs> ruler sacrifice definitely seems to have been uh, something that the ruler had to factor into what he was doing. 
Yes, that's uh, that's what I usually call the Viking version of the French Revolution. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Say is, I mean, I can't help but draw some comparisons to to what Ed Gamester's trying to do with his with his show and this kind of ritual idea of of, of, of telling the stories. Um, because I know, especially speaking to him, he he spoke about how he wanted to bring in the audience and this how the space was important. And it was telling the telling the stories through theatre. Um, so Simon, it, it's Ed Gamester is a, he's been on the show a few times, and he put together a live show which incorporates incorporates the pro wrestling into telling the the myths of. Uh, so he started with Ragnarok, um, and I went to see I went to see it, and it was it, it was all it, to, to be honest, it was quite a, a ritualistic feeling kind of scenario. It was. Uh, the stage was in the middle, and everyone sat sat all the way around. Um, and he went through the went through the story of Ragnarok with, with performing. It was a it was it was theatre. It was it was a full performance piece. And as you spoke, I couldn't help but think of of that being kind of of, of how that might have been. I think I think one of the things that we tend to forget as modern humans, um, possibly because of the context of athletics nowadays, is that athletics back in the in, in ancient Greece, right, and also you know the spectacles in Rome and in the Colosseum, they all had religious components to them. Um, there are incredibly many um, parallels between sports performances and sport events, be it whatever form of football you into or 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 hockey or or, or anything you know the way that uh, that supporters of a team treat their team uh, the, the team being represented by often a totem animal or of sorts right the mascot um and the the, the liminal state that that you're in in the in the in whatever arena that the the, the, the thing takes place in there are a lot of, of parallels um so, so like on, a, on a phenomenological is, is, level on a phenomenological right? way yeah yeah, yeah definitely yeah. definitely yeah, yeah. Um, but, it, but i would also like i mean keep in mind that when when greece converted to christianity that's when the games stopped that's when that's when they stopped having the olympic games right um or at least when uh, christianity became the dominant religion so so uh, there's something to be said for um you know athletics and and, and such things in the incipiency in in those mediterranean societies having had distinct religious contexts of various kinds definitely definitely yeah yeah and and so, so this is why this is why in modern times we, everything is about genre in modern times, right? We separate different kinds of books into genres. We separate uh, TV shows, music, and all that stuff, right? But uh, in in context of uh, earlier pre-Christian societies, in particular, we should see a lot of these things that we we tend to want to separate into different genres as as associated with one another, and sometimes quite often the same even so mm. so that yeah. um that is that is definitely part of that worldview that they had right mm-hmm. oh like, yeah like i say i wanted to just bring that up because it was be, being there live it was certainly a it was an amazing spectacle and and you you couldn't help but be sucked into the performance um you you kind of overcome with emotion i'm sure it wasn't everybody there felt 
the same. And uh, and like I say, as you were speaking about them performing these these poems, it it, it kind of made ties for me in that. And I wondered how many people are, are kind of doing this thing today. Um, I mean, I'm all for basing a new modern religion off of uh, Ed Gamester's uh, wrestling uh, performances. So if, I we mean, can, even if, if we could get that ball rolling up there. I mean, even if you even if you took the, because obviously the wrestling was only a small part of it, it was just that the fight scenes had had the wrestling because he wanted to, I needed a way to portray the, the fighting or the battles with, with a very few people. Um, but, it, you know, it was as much theatre as it was anything else and the telling of the story. Um, so yeah, like I say, I just it, it did feel almost ritualistic in the moment when you're there. So definitely, it, it, it and, drew and those comparisons. Anyone who loves going to uh, to concerts can can probably tell you the same story. That 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 also, especially if you are really into a scene, and you go to a show with other people who are really into a scene or a band you can get this feeling of belonging together uh what we uh with uh, with the the Duocamian word called like a collective effervescence um uh, that this this uh, elevated feeling of unity in a group and that's what i argue basically uh, coming back to me uh i argue that that's that's what these rituals potentially had the potential uh, was horrible to do right that the group would feel more united with each other and with their leader and with their god and and an, an upside of that is that further furthering this in-group pro-sociality uh, and in-group uh, identification uh, is a good thing in in a warrior society so that you don't just run away when when shit gets hot you stay mm -hmm. and, and you fight for for your group you fight for your leader you fight for your god you fight for the the, the for for you know for the promise of an afterlife that's uh that's uh worth for some right? for some valkyrie nookie yeah <laughs> also potentially that <laughs> also mine had yeah nookie if you're into that uh, yeah you know, i guess I so yeah. <laughs> um, you do, yeah i mean you do. After doing the dishes, <laughs> you're completely correct in that, that. You know, you do have to bring a sense of camaraderie. I guess, like I say, I, I can only put things into perspective of my life. And when I played, when I played rugby. Um, oh, we you were, too. Fantastic. We were, you know, we were we were family and, and brothers mm. on the field. And mm. in that moment, I was I was willing to die to win, and then to and to get this little ball over that little white line <laughs> and and get those uh, those those vital points but but that's how it was because you get whipped up into this emotion um yeah and, and in that moment it's a battle and you you know you're willing to, to risk serious harm for uh for what it's nothing really it's just some little points on a board <laughs> this is why you, you 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 have young men doing it they're easier to rile up like that you know, old, yeah, older yeah. men are more like, ah, I got a kid at home. Yeah. And also, uh, us, you know, us, us old boys time. maybe have one, maybe have one game a year in us. Also, because yeah. that, you know, you know, you throw out your shoulder or your knee and then you're fucked for the rest of the season, you know. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, get you get a hernia. <laughs> oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> it does. It does. Um, okay. So, one question I guess I, I get asked quite a lot. This is, off off rituals but more just onto like pre-christian is what sources can we 
trust. Well, no, no, no. That I, <laughs> I know that I know that's the answer. Um, but it isn't. Yeah, there isn't the whole answer. But like, what can what can people who want to want to read and get an accurate idea of what the religion would have been in kind of like pre-Christian Viking age? Where do they look? Because it, it seems to some people, I guess that. The no matter what what they read, there's somebody saying, "Well, that's bullshit. Don't trust that. This is why that's inaccurate." Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think there's the if we if we take accuracy as our measuring stick, we don't get far. Uh, but but it also you know it it it's, it depends on what you want from the sources, right? Um, it's a fantastic little piece by a Danish scholar called Preben uh, Sørensen. Um, who in 91 wrote uh, an article or chapter in a book about the differentiation between what you want in Eddic poetry, for instance, in Old Norse sources. So that, that if you want to look at the physical manuscripts and, and at, at the text as linguistic product, by all means, go nuts. And that's legitimate. You get, you, you get an accurate picture of the medieval Christian context in Iceland in which these manuscripts were, were you know, produced. But if you want to look at the content and if you want to see whether or not that fits with what we think we know about a Viking Age uh, tradition, then you can do that as well. You just need to bear in mind that the other context is there as well. So you can take everything at face value. You have to be critical. So, you know, back to back to the horse penis, right? You have to be critical about what you Always read. Always back to the horse penis. In, um, I, th- I feel like this is going to be a theme for the rest oh, of the Oh, it is. Uh, <laughs> oh, the rest of the podcast, not just the show. <laughs> Sorry about that. There's to nothing everyone. to apologize. <laughs> um, don't, don't, believe, don't believe everything you hear about the horse penis. Um, because, you know, there is some grain of truth, you know, maybe many grains of truth in that story and there definitely are many uh, accurate representations of mythological concepts in edic poetry uh, but there are also some that you should be wary about um, and and you know if you if you want accurate viking age sources you go to the archaeological material the only problem with the archaeological material is that it can't speak can't tell you anything you have to interpret it you have to use your modern methods, your modern mind, and the medieval sources again to decode what happened, what's happening there. You have to use comparative material when you don't know what the fuck is going on. And, you know, so, so yes, these, those sources are accurate and as accurate as, as they get. But if you only use those sources, you don't get anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. I, I feel like I've yeah. been telling you this, Dan, already. <laughs> I I know the answer. I'm putting it out there for everybody else. That's my role here. But I mean, it's 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 a really it's a really complicated situation with the uh, with the source material because going back to a guy like Adam Abraman, right? We have we have what is presumed to be his original text, and then we have like also these inserts in the text that are younger. They're actually more fun. They're the ones that actually talk about the temple and all that stuff, right? And and so it's like, um, <laughs> like several layers in one single text where you you know at, at, at some point you have to like look at it and be like, well, this this portion over here seems to be 
closer to the Viking Age and this portion yeah. over there. And it's like, and and then we haven't even touched on Skaldic poetry, um, right? Because the Skaldic poetry is is funny in that it's presumed to be some as as Old Norse sources, Old Norse language sources come some of the most uh, trustworthy and accurate of of the bunch. The only problem is that that they're really fucking hard to to understand, right? I think a lot of them have also just been like attributed to somebody in a in a oh, yeah, song. Yeah. It's like, oh, so so then Eyjolf Skattergrimsson uh, composed this poem, and then there's a little ditty, and it's like we don't know if he did that. That's that's what some 13th century author of this story is saying. It's like so, but I think <laughs> the, the, the 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 gist of of the whole argument surrounding uh, Skaldic poetry is that. The meter in Skaldic poetry, or one of the meters used in Skaldic poetry, is incredibly complex and complicated. And and if you change one word, the whole thing you know falls apart. So so that means that we have well, the transmission of Skaldic poetry in the manuscripts is thought to be quite accurate because it's so strict. Mm -hmm. uh, the the edic the edic poetry isn't as strict and there's there's more room to wiggle but but still there are there are rules that have to be kept and and then you know when when in an oral society that's newly converted to to using uh, writing um we know this from from for instance uh, south africa we know this from from the anglo-saxon uh, material people could do both they could perform something from you know from their mind orally but they could also use that knowledge to write shit down, right? And and we have examples of, of that being done, and that's a, that's a distinct possibility with with uh, with Eddie poetry as well, right? That, that, that that's people who kept the tradition alive or could compose new poetry according to the tradition also wrote mm -hmm. this poetry down because they could, right? They had the tech the, the technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the the whole discussion of like what is historically accurate and how how are things remembered and, and all that stuff is, is is incredibly fascinating too because you know in if, if we go to modern situations of uh, court trials and you know research into witness testimonies for instance uh, <laughs> all of a sudden we realize that wait a minute the way that people could reconstruct the past through their memory is entirely their own the, that old idea of like we will get to a, a point where we can like positively verify that this happened and it happened in this way and all that stuff completely out of the window at that point yeah definitely like, there's we, also a lot of uh, this ritual uh, anthropology of ritual uh and cognitive anthropology uh, of ritual that that's that's it's looked at specific firewalking rituals in Mauritius, uh, uh, and and people can't remember shit from going through mm -hmm. these rituals. They 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 don't remember anything because they're mm -hmm. so high on adrenaline and, and just trying to kind of get through it all. Uh, what they do rely on is is the conversations that they had with each other afterwards. They construct a common a common kind of scene, and what they're told this means and is supposed to mean by religious authority before. Their own experience doesn't really matter, um, and 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 that kind of that that's I think is also very interesting uh, in, in in terms of looking at uh, uh, prehistoric and pre-Christian uh, ritual. That that's, that doesn't you know 
doesn't really matter what you think you experience because what you are going to remember, how you reconstruct your experience is based on your cultural knowledge and the group that you experienced it with. That, that, no, that's definitely fascinating because I, I know a few people who, who see things one way when the reality is something completely the opposite. Uh, we all know a few people like that. How much do you look at rituals in other cultures that I guess that still exist today? Um, do you ever look at those to then try and look back in times and link it to um, a pre-Christian uh, religion? Um, yeah, maybe not, you know, completely modern, but but uh, at, at least kind of, um, you know, uh, 1900s and, and upwards. And that's, of course, also problematic. Um, I guess things but, are better documented than... Yeah. What we have. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what's what's interesting in, in some with something like that, this is that that's the the in in a place like Nigeria in 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 Yoruba land uh, in Western Africa, where the you know we talked about Candomblé uh, earlier that has roots in Western Africa, um, but in Western Africa, we the 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 the, the old religion, the old Yoruba religion still is alive today. So we can kind of check the old missionaries' descriptions against what still is being performed and being uh, believed in uh, today. And there's a whole, it is complicated. I mean, but, but, that's, but, but what we would also expect from any tradition is that it evolves exactly, over, exactly. you know, a hundred years. What I find fascinating about the Yoruba uh, traditions um, is that they're so so like both rituals and mythologies and ideas about the world and all ideology that attaches to that so fucking similar to what it looks like in 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 viking age scandinavia <laughs> yeah it's it's fantastic and a place like um hawaii pre-conversion another place that's just you know i've i've done i've done some research on on that uh and, and it's just baffling mm -hmm. there's a there are, of course, culturally specific differences that needs to be, and there is, of course, and those are equally important. But there's so many structural similarities. Ruler sacrifice, for instance, both yeah, in, yeah. in 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 the in Yoruba uh, religion in pre-Christian North, and especially in 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 pre-conversion Hawaii, uh, was was such an important part of 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 the society, basically. Um, and and so, what would yeah. be the purpose of sacrificing a ruler? If, if I told were... you, I told you this already. It's the Viking <laughs> version of the French Revolution. It's when the ruler doesn't work anymore. <laughs> well, that's well, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if would it be a case if they it's a, it's a successful ruler, so you so they sacrifice a successful ruler in hope that it's you get good things back. You can do both, right? You can you can you can either you can either either if if things go badly, you can uh, you can sacrifice the one in charge. But, you know, basically, when, when in, in Denmark, a lot of banks uh, have a problem with uh, laundering money. And what they do is then they, they, they take the, the director of whatever branch and they fire. You know, you can do that. And then, then hopefully things will, will get better in, in, in these pre-Christian -pre -pre societies. Pre-Christian societies have a kind of another logic to them in, in that they sacrifice the king because he's the most potent uh, sacrificial victim. Right. 
Um, and and in, in pre-Christian Hawaii, it also is a way to consolidate power. Right? So if you, you know, in, in, in pre-conversion Hawaii, um, rulers were perpetually trying to one-up each other. Everyone wanted more. Everyone wanted to, to be the paramount ruler, basically. And when someone succeeded in, 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 in winning, if they, had, if they hadn't killed the paramount ruler, uh, in, in the process, they would sacrifice him ritually to the war god Ku. Um, and they did that because he was the most potent uh, victim. Um, and and on a, in a more real sense, because he is a threat to, to their rulership yeah, yeah, too, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, <laughs> I mean, and, 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 but it, it went as far in pre-Christian high, actually, that, that every human sacrifice represented the king. If you, if you violated the taboo, you were sacrificed as a stand-in for the king. But how much of that? How much of that is a sacrifice, and how much is that just doing the logical thing of killing off your nearest competition, or or killing off the king who's shit? But um, the, that's the thing; it's all pragmatic. It's yeah, it, it's, it's mixed, right? It, 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 yeah. It's giving a, a a religious and mythological uh, reason and meaning to something that needs to be done. Anyway, mm -hmm. we see this with I, a lot of rituals. See, that's the thing. Our tendency, this is why I like to compare this situation to the French Revolution. Our tendency <laughs> to analyze, right, is that uh, it, it, we pick it apart. We pick the French Revolution apart as a political process, but it's just as much a sacrificial process. You could, you could give it a religious wrapping, and then you'll see a people that is, is, is experiencing famine and hunger and decide to sacrifice their ruler uh, to make the situation better, right? That is no different, really, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, the logics you could apply to that, as, as, as if uh, you see some, you know, ninth century Viking population doing the same thing. They, they just have, you know, a different scaffolding holding all of these ideas up of, like, why they did it and uh, why it needs to happen and so on. You could apply the same logics to um, those uh, successive uh, uh, sacrifices of uh, of emperors that kept happening happening in uh, in late antiquity in Rome, right? You know that, that how different is that from the Hawaiian example of like now I've won up the, the this this ruler over here, he needs to go get out of the way. Again, we look at the Roman example and we're like, well, that's a political process. This, this is getting rid of competition. But we look at the Hawaiian example as something that has to do with, you know, religion and mythology and so on. You know, both things go to, uh, together here. So, yeah, um, I think it was it was in the Terry Gunnell episode that he said how we need to or forget or not think of ritual as getting getting something back which is kind of how I probably thought of ritual in the past. And probably a lot of people listen to this still do. Um, and the idea of you will sacrifice a goat in hope that you're going to get a good harvest. Um, that's kind of how ritual has always been portrayed. And a lot of people think of it, whereas it seems in these senses that, that maybe it's something that has to be done. So it's a ritual thing. And you're not necessarily expecting to get something back from it. It's just it's probably action. It really depends, right, on, on if, you know, a lot of different factors. Like there are some rituals that are definitely, that exist to get stuff back. But there are also rituals that exist to, you know, correct a cosmic situation, 
right? Mm-hmm. Or, or another way, have have a, a you know uh, a cosmic implications that um, that can go, you know, in many different directions. Wouldn't you agree, Simon? But would yeah, that definitely. Not, would that mm-hmm. not still be getting something back if you're wanting a cosmic change? It might not be like in in a physical thing of like crop, but it would still be something. Or it's just something that needs to happen because if you have a rationalization that is cosmic, that that could be a, 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 a an explanation for it. If you needed an explanation, sometimes you may. The the, the, the rituals where you get something back, they they definitely also existed, and 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 you know they 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 are in the kind of conceptualize rituals almost in three ways. You perform a ritual to change your status basically and you can change it to the better you can you can kind of there's not much change in status quo but you know you can also perform a ritual to keep the status quo but you can also perform a ritual to uh, go from something that's worse to something that is status quo or that's better than the worst so this if you, you have a you have plus you have a, a you know a zero and you have a a minus you can change your status from any of these three by performing a ritual um, mm-hmm. and and performing a ritual to keep status quo which is one of the main logics underpinning uh, many oral societies and basically that the, if you don't perform the rituals the world will end right mm-hmm. okay and, and, and that's 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 the logic right if you don't perform the rituals we won't be here tomorrow or we won't be here in a year and and that's also why a story like Ragnarok is so effective, right? Um, and that you know, if, if you don't perform the rituals, basically, you know, the sun will be eaten by a giant fucking wolf, and 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 the world will sink into the sea, and you will die, and then of course, you know, the the, the earth will come back, and everything will be fine and dandy for for those who survived, but 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 you will die, right? Your family will die, everyone will die, except. Except these. But I mean, we also we also go uh, to to places of like, well, we perform rituals that have hitherto been, uh, uh, you know, rationalized as they will maintain the world order, but since they have now stopped, and we're then trying to reinstate them, like that, you know, I'm using the example of Rome here. Um, uh, it's because of tradition. Right, it's because it's because we need to bring back good virtues or something like that. There, there are plenty of examples of, uh, you know, Roman rituals, where um, it, we see we see different uh, 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 rulers, um, if it's consuls or or uh, um, imperators or later on emperors and so on. Uh, violating certain religious processes, right? And 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 then we have you know scholars like Cicero and Lucan and and others like Cato talking about this and being like, okay, so um, yeah, back in the day, listen, that particular consul didn't uh, consult the auguries before he did something, um, and uh, that was very bad. And we need to bring that back because tradition, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's also, but I mean, tradition is a, in a sense, also an appeal to bringing back a world order, right? Like when you say, because tradition, then you're also saying, well, because of a distinct idea I have of a world order that 
uh, is either in decline or no longer exists or should be brought back or whatever, right? Um, then then that the re rituals become significant in context of like reestablishing an order of, of, of the world. So in that sense, I guess also, you know, the idea that if we stop doing this, the world will end. That also applies to the, the this, you know, less cataclysmic level of the mm. world ending, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, the maintaining world is order. Yeah. The world as we know it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of interesting, right. actually. It feels like hopefully a lot of this conversation might help people question what they define as a ritual. Um, yeah, because it definitely. may not be what no. you what you what you think. I know obviously we've we've done a lot of these episodes now. And we've spoken to a lot of interesting people, and and my opinion has certainly changed on from what I, I originally thought to what I think now. But I still try to put myself in the position of how I used to think to try and i guess ask the questions of, of what what i would and I, and I assume that a lot of people listening to this will have that idea of a ritual being very much a, a give receive mm. transaction um where so so it's really interesting to hear that the that maybe it's not or it's not that simple it is a case of that maybe it's to prevent something or just because something needs to be done so it's, but it's mm. done in a kind of a ritualistic yeah. or part of a ritualistic i mean yeah. in in many ways, you could say ritual is is almost always about, or maybe always. I don't know, Simon. Uh, just tell me to shut up. If uh, I'm, I'm, if I'm very excited to to hear what you say next. <laughs> um, uh, about maintaining order, like whether or not it's a it's it's a it's a ritual that seeks to uh, get something, like for instance, more pigs in in my pen. Um, uh, or it, it, whatever the ritual is, even if it's a destructive one, um, a ritual that seeks to kill your enemies or whatever, right? It, the purpose of the person m making it, making the ritual might be uh, said to always in some way or other um, aim at maintaining an order that you mm -hmm. want to impose on the world. Yeah, yeah maintaining or, 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 you know, also changing. Um, rituals are, are often about change. Uh, for, for better or for worse, right? Um, but but basically, you know, we can define ritual as a certain type of activity that is performed by an individual or group on behalf of this individual or on behalf of the group <clears throat> that that seeks to change something and that has as a consequence for the group a uh, further. Uh, sense of of belonging together of unity right and that's kind of that's that's my you know amalgam of 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 uh, of ritual scholars and, and scholars of religion that, that I've, I've read that's that's kind of that's what i see at least in the viking age context right mm -hmm. um and, I, and, I would say that yeah. unity is is the order aspect of things right yeah because definitely that that maintains a, an, an idea of order i mean one one uh, speaking of Rappaport, that you mentioned earlier, I mean, this yes. <laughs> is uh, his uh, observations in uh, uh, Pigs for the Ancestors. I, I think is really interesting. Um, that's a that's a you know, ritual cycle that I've worked with myself in context of volcanoes, right? Because it's actually, uh, if you ask me, that this whole situation is derived uh, from 
volcanic activity. We have a situation where this particular tribe in Papua New Guinea um, that lives in the vicinity of a volcano, or actually a couple of volcanoes, um, whenever a certain type of marsupials that live in the, the forest areas around them become too populous, they start going to war. Um, so they're like, they're killing off the, the marsupials, they start smoking and they do, do war rituals and then they attack their neighbors. And it's because of the population of the marsupials. But the overall reasoning behind all of this seems actually to be connected to the smoke woman who lives up in Mount Oipo. Um, and, and, and we wanna make sure that she doesn't come out. So, so it's actually a, a very destructive war ritual that has the potential of, you know, even destruct, des destroying the, the tribe itself, um, you know, if their neighbors are too powerful, for instance, that goes into the cycle of, of destruction, but is, is intended, intended to actually equilibrium between our existence and volcanic eruptions and these freaking marsupials that they for some reason connect to them <laughs> could that be based on some kind of environmental change leads to the marsupials populating more and then, and then so it's, it's almost like a you send nature as, as the marsupials grow that's kind of a, a trigger warning that the volcanic eruption may so, happen yeah so so there's i think the logic behind it is that uh, uh, the they when when the marsupials uh, uh, they they reach a certain population number, this is when we last time recorded in oral history um, a a volcanic eruption that was devastating to some extent. They uh, so their cosmos right is is based off of the valley they live in, and there's fire at the top, and there's water below. So there's also something that has to do with mitigating the relationship between fire and water in in their environment uh, through these rituals, right? So so yeah, it's it, it has something to do with that, and it's um it's they, probably they just poor marsupials, really. It's just coincident. <laughs> it's totally coincidence, right? Because and they just get they, the thing like, is so the thing is that this whole thing makes perfect sense when you understand the environmental conditions that the population of, uh, of this tribe lives in uh, and and the um the mythological universe that they live in as well it's like oh yeah okay of course of course you would you know context um, is everything right context is everything and you could say that um you know killing off the marsupials and also uh, raiding your neighboring tribes um has everything to do with population control right because what what is a, a common element in volcanic eruptions is that it's probably going to disrupt uh, disrupt as at least parts of your food production systems and your ability to gather resources in one way or other right so it makes perfect sense that you would then start bolstering your your storage right by by taking slaves by uh, by killing off neighbors so that you have more land to hunt on and farm if you need to right and also of course building up supplies by um killing these animals in your vicinity before we before we wrap up i just want to touch on um the conversation of belief that we had before yes. we hit recording and that made me just think of Mateus talking about the masupios and how we could link it to that because 
Um, as I said, like if you if you believe that the mass when the marsupial population rises, uh, that's kind of like a free choice thing. People might believe that, but if you genuinely, it, it, you it's just an absolute that when the marsupials get to a certain level, that the volcano will erupt, and that is just an absolute fact. Then it makes sense that when you get to that point, you're like, okay, we need to now go to war because that is just a, a thing. It's not a belief. It's it's what happens. And we were talking about that earlier um, before yeah. we yeah, got to hit record. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think I think my disliking the word uh, belief uh, in a pre-Christian context stems from the sort of connotations it it has in Danish. I I, I realized that that after talking to actual native speakers, that that belief doesn't necessarily entail always the investedness that it's to me at least does in 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 protestant christianity which is kind of um, I, would, I would say the, that the you know in, in english it, you 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 get some of the same connotations so my problem my problem is that that belief has to do with kind of an inner individual world it feels like a choice almost from, from yeah, yeah and, and, like... and and you the, the, your personal religion depends on what you believe in do you believe that odin has the potential to appear in this world do you believe in christ the almighty do you believe in uh in in in, in whoever you you believe in 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 buddha in the uh, well not buddha's bad sorry um, <laughs> i think even even going to if you I don't know. Put into a modern context, um, you know, you get people who believe against scientific facts, like the world being flat. Like you get people who believe that, um, even though it's not true, the world's round. <laughs> yes. So, so but, it but is I kind of like my that choice. The, the, the argument that I, I I try to make with it in 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 my research is uh, is that it's not necessary for people to believe or not believe that these things could take place because the worldview, the cosmos that they lived in was what we call monistic. It, 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 it comprises of, of very, various different worlds that are connected. So traveling between these worlds for, with, if you have, if you have the right, uh, the right vehicle or the right propensities, you know, you, you can do that. It's, it's, you know, it's part and a large part of the mythology, even that like that a certain, penis, exactly. <laughs> uh, or eight, eight of them strapped to, no, no. Um, <laughs> so if, if you, the potential of at least the gods entering, uh, entering this, you know, the, the, the world of humans without a question. But, and, and, and I would also argue that, that humans entering the world of, of, uh, of the gods, at least when they die, right, potentially also uh, while they are living um, in, in some form. And, and that, that's just it's a no-brainer. It's like dropping your pen and saying, well, okay, the gravity still works. Good for us, right? And it's, it's the same thing. You don't believe in, in gravity. It's a, it's a part of your world. It's, it's a constant. And you don't believe in the gods because they are your friends, right? They, they're, they're part of your world and they influence your world. and They, they decide whether or not you have you know, success. At least that's, 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 
you know the generalized system we see yeah no because because you do get today's people who believe or not in christianity um but it seems like back then it was more that that is just that's just life there yeah. you don't they did it they didn't but they never didn't consciously think that they believe in this pre-christian religion it was mm. more just mm. that's life yeah. is that am i so I, I felt like I, I was. On, I felt like I was getting in until Mateus pulled that face. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you're not wrong. You're not. You're not wrong. Kinda. So, <laughs> but 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 we we should. Um, and this is where uh, I will refer to you know uh, uh, both Simon and my uh, 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 teacher, right, Jens Peter Schutt, who's pointed out that you know that uh, belief or you know. How how committed you are to a belief system or a religion or whatever, you know, also comes down to the various factors that have to do with like psychology and um, social positions in life, and you know, a lot of different factors. And and you know, go back again to uh, pre-Christian Mediterranean literature, and you can find a lot of different attitudes. Uh, to what the gods are or if the gods exist and all of that stuff and i think uh, over time at least um although the populations in northern europe have been smaller than in the mediterranean area but over time you'll probably find similar variations they just haven't written much down about it and Definitely. and i think yeah. that's the same across the planet right like you find a lot of different attitudes um yeah yeah but I think my point is that that there are, of course, different attitudes, whether Odin was this or that, or whether he was your favorite god, or you, you preferred Freya or, or Freya, or whoever you, 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 you worship the most or in most contexts. But, but, but the god's existence isn't questioned nearly as much. You know? There are, of course, people who ra- would rather believe in this themselves. Right? Uh, I mean, the, 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 we, we do find those those attitude in ancient Rome, right? In oh Greece, yeah, yeah, definitely. Egypt, definitely. right? Yeah, yeah. Like people who do say, "I don't think the gods exist," and I, I'm I'm sure that you could find that too, perhaps not at the same rate, so to speak, right? Yeah, uh, but well, because we're dealing with smaller societies. Right? Like, yeah. I think that know. maybe yeah. is as as kind of these civilizations get to a a certain level of advancement then people get the freedom to maybe step away and not believe in religion like, like, i guess like like we are like we are to, today a lot Dude, of people was... believe in religion then maybe oh no, no 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 man 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 you, you've never been to the u.s then everybody believes in in something here like yeah it's... but not in the in the uk i would say it's a complete i think opposite yeah religion is a people believing in religion is a rarity over here so that's why i wondered if advancement gave people the freedom to then I think that question. has something to do with cultural modes. Like that's that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with you know advancement. We're not dealing with um, you know uh, different religions for that matter. We're dealing with cultural modes that that are that are more or less dominant in a society. I just I I did the awful mistake of uh, listening to the interview with the QAnon shaman. Uh, I don't know if you remember that guy with the horned headdress and the the, the, the America face. Um, I, I was just <laughs> listening to that. And that is some crazy ass rambling. The problem with that crazy ass rambling is that I've heard it from a lot of people that I'm also relatively good friends with. Um, because so much of it is just an amalgam of a lot of like 
standard cultural ideas and attitudes that are present in American society and also to an extent in Europe. And again, cultural mode rather than, you know, whether or not we, we have advanced to a, to a spot where, where we're more skeptical towards religion. We have to look, look for the reason for skepticism towards like whether or not gods or God exist in something else, if you ask me. And I think, you know, the, the main thing is actually culture more than anything. Like if it's culturally relevant for, for religion to exist. Yeah, and I think one of the points about the role of religion in, in, in the Viking Age is, uh, and has been made uh, numerous times by, for instance, Anna Schultko, uh, from, from uh, Sala, the old uh, historian of religion, he, he's argued that, that you know, in, and, that, and this makes totally total sense to me, at least, uh, in, in a society like Viking Age society, late Iron Age society, whatever you call it, culture and religion is so intertwined. Religion is uh, so much a part of culture, uh, as is art and entertainment and all other things that we, and this is basic Max Weber, uh, that, that over, over time, at least, you know, culture gets separated into something that isn't is religion and and isn't, mm-hmm. and that the, that which which isn't religion is then separated into what he calls value spheres uh, of of of, uh, of of the economic of, of the uh, of, of sexuality of intellectual uh, of, of art and stuff like that, and and that just isn't the case in in Viking Age. We still have a, a big ball, a big lump of 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 things that we call culture. And, and we as modern people have to, and modern scholars have to dig into that to find with that which we define as religion and that we can re- recognize as religion. There's a whole, in, 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 the, in the history of religion, uh, kind of, uh, there's, there's been a, a hot debate about whether or not religion existed in, in Rome, for instance, because they didn't have a word for religion. They didn't have a, a uh, they didn't call their religion something we can identify as religion and that's just it's just, just a mute point because because they didn't need it because they, they, their, their culture was so intertwined in what we would call religion that 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 you know it, that, that they just didn't need it right and in, in, in that, that, that's just the case in in, in so many uh, cultures that that people you know in in, in these cultures, Sit uh, porridge out for for the farm uh, spirits. Uh, they, they 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 pour them a little glass of 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 the of of, uh, of beer, um, it, so so it doesn't sour, and they, they 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 have to keep them happy, right? And that that is that that's 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 a ritual to us. That's part of religion to us, but it's just part of every everyday life, right? Perfect. Right. Should we should we wrap this up? We've yes. been I think yes. it's nearly. Uh, we didn't even. I'll, I'll have to come back to, to oh, you, tell you about uh, you Black Metal, back for instance. With, you are back without yes. doubt. Um, <laughs> if Mateus ever wanna... doesn't, Mateus ever doesn't feel well, you can pop on a cap, take the glasses <laughs> off, and nobody will know the difference. Oh um, shit! Are you are you looking for my replacement? <laughs> I, I think I've just found it. If you ever annoy me now, I've just found it. I'm on. I'm, I'm on the bench, right? I'm on the bench. <laughs> You're on the bench. You're well, I mean, there. no, we definitely would like you to come back and talk about. The stuff that you're doing with uh, with runestones and 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 all yes. that stuff too. Yes, there's just so. no point trying to cram that into this. this. This episode held its own with with rituals. I mean, 
you know, the, it was a fun one. Um, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon. This has been uh, great to catch up on your uh, scholarship yes. and uh, hearing your clever words. You well, you too. Uh, even though I, I, I always like our small disagreements. Yes, they're, if, they're great. <laughs> uh, kind of nit, nitpicky, nerdy disagreements. I, I suspect that they come, they'll come back for the Black Metal episode also. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you need friends who disagree with you and uh, put yes. you in your place if you ever need yeah, it. Keep you on your toes. That's it. Um, that's why I keep my tears around. <laughs> uh, Simon, uh, where can people find you? I guess if there's anything you want to share, if you, I don't know if you're out there that much social media wise or if you keep yourself um, uh, well i am relatively active on twitter um otherwise you um I, I can write a link to my homepage about the runic poetry uh project i'm doing not much on there yet but but, but some and uh and yeah uh if you're into uh runic black metal then um then I can uh, I can write you a link for uh, for for my band. Yeah, you can find Wolfus on Instagram, right? Yes, Wolfus is on Instagram, on Facebook as well, I believe. Uh, not much happening because you know COVID and stuff, and uh, the world is burning. Um, but 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 uh, we're, we're we're keeping busy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Well, well, all the links will be in the show notes. So everybody listening. Just, just hit the little dis, dis, expand description button, I guess, and it will uh, reveal all. Uh, Matthias, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram. Uh, you're welcome to follow me there. Look at what I'm up to. Um, follow my stories about, you know, shoveling snow. Mm -hmm. um, Listening to Russian techno. Listening to Russian techno is also a thing that happens once in a while, um, uh, and uh, and other random shit. Um, and of course, you should also go and support the Nordic Mythology podcast on Patreon. Sign up for that and um, get one extra free. Uh, well, it's not free. One extra episode every uh, week. <laughs> and um, don't be saying it's free. It's no, it's not free. It's uh, that's the whole purpose of Patreon. <laughs> that is the whole purpose of Patreon. <laughs> no, the the lowest Patreon amount is literally the price of buying us a cup of coffee. Well, one of us a cup of coffee a month. Uh, the middle amount is like buying us both one a month. So it's not expensive, but it really does help us out. Helps us keep growing the show. Um, and like Matthias said, you get a free, not free, fuck, why do I keep saying free? You get a bonus <laughs> episode every week. One episode is a Q&A where um, basically as a patron, you get to ask Matthias anything, just things that maybe we've missed in an episode, a burning question you've had, doesn't have to be related to the latest episode either, it can be literally anything. You can ask Matthias and he's going to answer it in detail. Um, and then the other bonus episode is story time with Jonas Lorenzen, where we read a saga. Jonas comes on and narrates the saga. It's always a good time. He has various different voices for different characters. Um, yeah, and we go through the sagas and discuss. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and other than that, leave us a five-star rain positive review wherever you listen to podcasts and Nordic Mythology Podcast and all the social medias. I think that's everything. There we go. Mm -hmm.